Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, one of the most masterful Indigenous authors, both fiction and nonfiction, Alexis Wright. Her book, Carpentaria, is hailed as the great Australian novel. Australia is famous for kangaroos, koalas, and the Great Barrier Reef, but it's also the country of dream tracks and songlines in a landscape inhabited for some 60,000 years, the oldest continuing culture in human history. For Aboriginal Australians, the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788, bringing English convicts and soldiers, is known as Invasion Day, or a day of mourning. In 2008, in one of his first official acts as Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd made a long-awaited formal apology to the stolen generations, Indigenous children who were forcibly removed from their families by government agencies for more than a hundred years, to them and their descendants and to the wider community. The event was part of an ongoing process of reconciliation as Australians confront the darker side of their history. Indigenous writer Alexis Wright is a literary sensation both in Australia and internationally. Her 2006 novel, Carpentaria, is strikingly original, drawing on oral tradition and mythology, and at the same time engaging with issues as immediate as the day's news. It's a kind of national epic, a marvelously inventive work that's big and ambitious, with humor and drama. As Alexis Wright herself admits, she wanted to put everything into it. The result is a book that won almost every literary award in Australia, and it became the first work by an Indigenous writer to win the country's most illustrious fiction prize, the Miles Franklin Award. She's also the only Australian to win both the Franklin and the Stella Prize, which she received in 2018 for Tracker, her collective biography of visionary Aboriginal leader and economist Bruce Tracker Tilmouth. Now, Alexis Wright's new novel, called Praiseworthy, is equally extraordinary, revealing, as the BBC put it, an Australia where myth and reality meet. It received the Queensland Literary Award for Fiction. And Wright is the inaugural winner of the 2023 Creative Australia Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. Alexis Wright was born in 1950, a member of the Oani Nation in the Gulf of Carpentaria. She grew up in Cloncurry, Queensland, about 300 kilometers south of the Gulf. In addition to being a novelist and essayist, she's worked as a researcher, administrator, and educator, all part of her activism for Indigenous rights. Her first novel was called Plains of Promise. It explored the painful collision of cultures at a Catholic mission for Aboriginal people. Alexis Wright lives in a northern suburb of Melbourne. She's married to Anatoly Soenko, also known as Arkady, in Bruce Chatwin's Songlines. They have two daughters. I spoke to her in Melbourne in 2009. Your grandmother was an important influence. I mean, you spent a lot of time with her from an early age. Can you tell me about her? My grandmother uh, was a, well, I think she just was a, a wonderful woman. Uh, everybody loved her. Yeah, she was deeply loved by all of our family and by people in uh, Cloncurry, where I, I grew up, a small town in, in northwest Queensland, and uh, just a you know, couple of hundred kilometres down, a few hundred kilometres down from the Gulf country, where my grandmother was born and grew up, and so my mother. Uh, and they had to leave the, leave the area. Um, that's another story altogether. Why did they have to leave the area? 
it's a long history of colonisation in this country. My uh, great-grandmother was uh, kidnapped when she was a, a little girl. The story in our family goes my great-grandmother and another little girl were found up in a tree in, in the bush by Frank Han, who was a, one of the first pastoralists up in that, that, that area big, on the big, Queensland big side. Big cattle rancher? Yeah, big cattle rancher. And he was also, you know, driving cattle, you know, on the Northern Territory side. The whole country's made up of Aboriginal nations but um, they were found up in a tree that's the story that's in our our family and um, I can only imagine what happened to her family because why were the two little girls found up in a tree in the middle of nowhere by a white cattle man and his workers and this this is your grandmother's my grandmother's mother mother. and um, historical records have shown that some of the people who worked for uh, Frank Han were quite, um, you know, uh, well, they murdered Aboriginal people. They, they, they had no qualms about killing Aboriginal people in those, those times. And um, there's also records from Northern Australia that, you know, children were taken like that. People were killed and children were taken and virtually brought up as slave labour on those properties. So um, they were taken onto, uh, you know, the Lawn Hill Station area and uh, that's where she grew up. And um, her husband was Chinese. He was a Chinese market gardener. She was kind of given to him. And because um, he was a, a cook on um, the cattle station, he had a market garden up in, in uh, that area. It's a very isolated area, but it's a, it's a beautiful area. And, um, and when he died, there's stories about why they couldn't stay. And uh, there were some stories about this small stream or part of the river system there was blocked off that fed the the market garden and so they didn't have the water it was blocked off from someone further up who didn't want them there um, once they left they couldn't go back really and um, we all became part of the cattle station the person who owned the cattle property you know and he could hunt them off anyway so gates were locked and and that's that's true you know in a lot of those properties gates were padlocked and you, you really had to get permission to go in and not a lot of our families were in the position to you know fight that sort of situation and saying this is you know this is our tribal land we've got to go back um that wasn't um, an acceptable um a thing in australia that aboriginal people had their own tribal land and they needed to be on that land it wasn't acceptable at all in those times still not all that greatly accepted either in Australia. So my grandmother and family moved down into Camerwheel and then into Cloncurry, and that's where I was born. Plus, you know, family was really poor too. That's the other thing with Aboriginal people is um, that um, none of us had, uh, or our families had motor cars in those days, you know, that you could just drive off and into the blue yonder and go back to your traditional country. My grandmother always wanted to go back. She, she, that's, I think she put that sort of imagination in my, into me as a very small child. I spent a, very, a lot of time with my grandmother from a very, very young age. She had a lot of grandchildren, but um, I think I just was determined that um, I wanted to be with my grandmother rather than my mother. My mum was poor, you know, she was really struggling to look after my sister and I. My father died when I was very young. And I always wanted to be with my grandmother. I would just run away from my mother and uh, go down to my, my grandmother's place, I think from about the age of three. And she lived uh, quite a distance from our place, but I just knew the way and nobody got in my way and just, uh, I think, just looked over <laughs> this child that was running through the bush and the prickly bushes and going to her grandma's place. And, uh, what, what, and it was just lovely to be with her. Why? Uh, what made her company so attractive Well, to you? she was just... She just had a, a, a different way of, of being, you know, nothing troubled her and uh, she used to take me on long walks along, along the river to the rubbish dump and visiting all sorts of people who used to live along the river in those days and she she really liked people and she would go and sit down and, you know, and have a cup of tea, you know, it'd be a a fire going, you know, for tea and uh, she'd sit down and have a cup of tea and and, uh, and move on and she did that with people in the in the town, you know, all the all the white people in town. She would just call, you know, if she wanted to, she'd just call by their place, and and uh, they would have to give her a, you know, a cup of tea or invite her in. She was just that sort of person. I've never known someone really like her, you know, in in those times. Because um, she had such a hard life herself. She had a hard life, um, but she had um, 
she was just a wonderful human being. She also uh, knew how to grow vegetables as well, and uh, she ran uh, chooks and she had uh, bush turkeys in the back, you know, the back block of her place. And she just liked having having me around. I think well, she had a lot of children herself, and, and it's often the case too with grandparents are much uh, more tolerant with grandchildren, and um, and maybe she didn't have access to a lot of the grandchildrens the way that she had me. I chose her, and I wanted to be with her all the time, and uh, she liked it that way too. And um, I, I was very fortunate, very lucky to have had that access to to my grandmother in that way, where a lot of Aboriginal children didn't and uh, in, you know and I've seen in, you know, in subsequent generations of Aboriginal children uh, sometimes when they're living long distances from their grandparents or the grandparents are no, no longer living I've had very difficult lives uh, I think um, part of it too was it, it was a more um, you know traditional way of sharing that responsibility of growing up children and that's possibly why my mother didn't intervene at all because it was a shared responsibility and that was fine with her, and uh, I was a difficult child anyway. Were you? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't a, a conforming child, put it that way. No. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how not? <laughs> uh, oh, no. I, 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 think, you know, I think I was a, a dreamy child, and uh, I didn't um, relate too much to the, to the reality, you know, of what was expected of me, and that was the, the way it was in that small town. And... Um, you know, running away to my grandmother and coming home filthy, dirty, and and uh, having to be washed in the laundry tub outside before I could enter the house because I was so dirty. And, and um, but I loved it, and that's you know that that was that was me, and I was um, probably a bit of a tomboy that they were called in those days. But um, I loved the bush, and um, I loved running around in the bush, and and that's what I did. I ran with a lot of other kids, you know, from around the area where my grandmother was living. My grandma never worried about that. She just thought I was fine, and uh, and I was too. It was a good life, a good way to be as a child. Your grandmother's uh, wonderfully strange stories, as you put it, uh, mm. was it the way she told them as much as the content itself that, that made such an impression on you? Well, she just had a different way of seeing the world, of relating to the world, and, and she had stories for nat- the natural world, you know, there were traditional stories or parts of traditional stories. Uh, an Aboriginal way is the spiritual relationship with everything that's, you know, in your surroundings, you know, the, the, the sky, you know, the moon, the, the stars, the trees and uh, this sort of tree or that sort of tree and uh, what it's doing, the river and, um, you know, what things that are in the river. If she was telling you something, she related it in that way. And um, at night time, you, you could be sitting outside and and she'd be talking and telling stories you know and particularly stories about lawn hill and stories relating to country just in a way that's almost like um i don't know like gossip in a way but it's just um a way of uh, i think um a lot of aboriginal people you know older people very traditional orientated people just view the world on a, a daily basis you know there's just it's just a natural way of seeing and relating to the world around them you later came to realize that your grandmother was selective in, in the sense that uh, she chose what she wanted remembered. What about that? I mean, what kinds of things did she leave out or what would she... As I, as I grew up and then I wanted to know more stories and more things, she would tell me so much, but then she would stop then and, well, we'll talk about this later or next time. That was what one way of you know, her making sure you'll come back. Um, and the other, when I talked about that before, I, I think I, I, I was um, in the in the life that I, I've lived and and um, and the things that I've seen and, and know about, you know, her life and my mother's life and and the lives of all of us as, as Aboriginal people in this country, that the really difficult lives and the things that have been involved with, you know, have been very difficult and things I've seen have been, you know, terrible and tragic, and they can really, when you're dealing with government over those things, it can really hurt you and eat you up, particularly when you feel like you're beating your head up against a brick wall. And I think about my grandmother, you know, she could have drummed all that into my head if she wanted to, about how hard life was, how terrible it was, you know, how unfair it was. But she didn't, you know, she chose to tell me good stories, you know, and stories about ourselves and um, things that are important, things that are handed down through the ages. 
And I, I really appreciate that and I hoped I've learned something from it. It was many years before you actually saw that northern landscape of the Gulf of Carpentaria, mm. which your grandmother had so vividly evoked. How did you picture it? I mean, what images did she plant in your imagination? It was just magical in my imagination as a child, growing up in this, you know, this very small northern Australia town that maybe now, only now, that I can appreciate some of the nicer things about that town. <laughs> I couldn't wait to leave when I, was, when I was growing up. I really couldn't. But with my grandmother, she always talked about the Gulf Country and always wanting to go back there and about fishing there and, and, the, and the, the beautiful waters and the fig trees and palm trees, the sort of native palm trees that grow there, not like the ones that you see, not coconut palms, they're a native palm. And um, it was just a magical place to me, you know, a place that I just thought was impossible to be real in a way because of, you know, where I grew up and not knowing anything else. So it, it was really planted in my imagination as this, you know, this really wonderful beautiful place. I mean, where I grew up didn't have any palm trees. It had dry riverbeds most of the time, unless it flooded during um, some rain that we might have got, which was supposed to be a wet season. So if we're lucky, the river might have ran. Very dry place, very small place, very narrow-minded place. So I really had this vision of what it was all like in my mind before I went there. And it is truly beautiful. You know, I think like I imagined far, far better than I could have ever imagined. It's a spring-fed water system and the water is crystal clear and um, yeah, it's full of turtles and fish and uh, water lilies. A really magnificent place where she grew up and my mother grew up. And you grew up in, in Cloncurry? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you said among its many not-so-attractive features was that it was a narrow-minded place. And, mm. and your, your father, who was, who was white, he died when you were only five? Yes, he did. He passed away when I was five. My sister was a year and a bit older than me. And we didn't have anything to do much with his family from that point on. And it was a really strange way to grow up in, a, in where, you know, you were part of a family then you know, than no more in a very small town like that. What are your memories of him? Oh, look, um, and, and I, I liked him, you know, I, I, I loved him, and um, he was my father. Um, I thought he was a wonderful person. He had a property, some land. He, we didn't see him all that much. He used to come in on weekends because he was out on the property, and... Um, I always remember him promising me a pony, and, <laughs> and uh, but I learned to ride horses uh, later on anyway. You know, I don't remember him all. In, I just remember what he looked like from a couple of photos that, that we still have. Because at the time you were growing up, you talk about, uh, in, in, in one of the lectures that you gave to Penn, about how there was a, a harsh view of the world that you absorbed from your mother and, and her struggle to mm. to support the family and growing up with, with a sense of fear even. And, and mm. can, you, can you tell me about that? With my mother, I think she really suffered from the kind of town that she was living in, the racism, prejudice. It really mattered to her, you know, what people thought of her and, and thought of us. She was fearful of that. And probably fearful that things could happen to us, you know, about policies that, you know, taking children away and if she wasn't a good mother or something like that. I think that might have been on her mind because she did have clashes with those sort of policies earlier before we were born about um, being made to work on different places, you know, under the, the Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Protection Act. And, and she had to fight her way out of that. And I think she that would have been on her mind as well that possibly things could happen to us. And she was struggling too to bring us up to work, you know, to have an income. She was cleaning the aerodrome um, buildings at, you know, um, the airport in Cloncurry. That was one of the things that she did for a number of years when we were growing up. And then she was working, you know, in the kitchen in the hotel. My mother was working under un, and living under quite harsh realities. And it made seemed to outsiders that it, it was uh, not a problem at all. But if you're someone who could be a target like that, that really is a problem. 
Because under these, um, I mean, it's ironically called protection acts, under mm. these Aboriginal protection acts, children could be taken. I mean, that was That's part right. of what's been called the stolen generations. I mean, that was yes, yes. up to that period, I mean, you, would, you would have been susceptible. Yes. Well, my mother at one yeah. stage when she was fighting to get off a, a cattle property where she was, you know, uh, forced to go to work under that, that legislation and was being treated quite brutally... When she she protested, and I mean that was a very brave thing for her to do as a, a, a young Aboriginal woman to take on these white police and protectors and you know white people who were you know the owners of this cattle station probably very uh, influential, prosperous people held in high esteem. And some of the records that um, one of my cousins has uh, done a fair bit of family research on our family and. Uh, she found some records that, you know, showed that my mother spent some time in a police cell, you know, where she was being looked after <laughs> until they could, you know, place her in some other place. And she was there by herself. So I think she knew the harshest side of life and she wanted to try to protect my sister and I. And, and as a consequence of that, she really was quite hard on my sister and I as well because she wanted us to, you know, to be... To, to be behave perfectly, or something. yeah, behave <laughs> or perfectly. Like yeah, yeah, to be a, yeah, beyond to, reproach. But, yeah, beyond reproach. Yeah. Beyond reproach. So I, I, I think that she instilled in me in some one thing, and that's determination. So I've been pretty determined in my life to win whatever I take on. Having uncovered some of these stories about your 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 grandmother and her, and her mother and so on, and and, mm. and in a sense growing up with a kind of mixed heritage. I mean. A, Irish, Chinese, Aboriginal. Mm. How did you see yourself? When I was uh, quite young, I didn't know really how to see myself. But as I grew older, I wanted to be like my, you know, my grandmother. And uh, I, my grandmother was very big on my mind, and 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 she still is. And uh, she was really, really important. And um, I started learning more about our own history, about who we are. Not just in my own family, but you know, through you know our own tribal area, the conditions of our, our people in Australia, and uh, you know, as you do as a, as a young adult, and uh, you know, could t- then start putting labels onto things that happened in, in in my life as a child that I didn't really understand, and I saw myself as Aboriginal because that's where most of my influences have come from. That's where my uh, security has come from and um, a sense of being. Interesting, your security, because in a a sense that was also what put you at risk. Yes, Yes, but um, there was nothing else. There was nothing else that was, you know, helping us in any other way. And uh, I don't know, I just grew up fighting and... um, became involved in land rights activities and working, you know, from my, in my own area. And I found probably more love and generosity and, and care amongst my own people than anywhere else in that time when I was a young, young adult and I still had a lot to learn. And they took me under, under their wing and taught me and taught me how to, you know, maybe look at the world and try to understand, you know, who we are and um, what's possible, what's not possible, and um, how to relate, you know, how to try to be a reasonable person, how to listen. So um, that seems fine enough for me. You said it was through working with Aboriginal organizations and and communities that you became a writer. How Mm. how so? Well, when I, I was working in Mount Isa and in Mornington Island, and all around that northwest Queensland area. Because I was young and I had a little bit of education and the people who were running those organisations and communities didn't have a great deal of education. They regarded me as, you know, oh, well, she knows how to read and write. And so that became my job, <laughs> and to, to do all the reading and the writing that needed to be done. And I would take the minutes of the meetings and in those times and everybody they'd want the, every word that they said written down and written exactly as they said it and so it really taught me to listen and it was a really it was actually a, a traditional concept of, of teaching a young person to listen and listen well and writing and reading grew from there more than any any school had ever taught me it came from my own people an education that came from my own people and uh, not from the school teachers that tried to teach me as I was, uh, you know, in school as a child. 
and uh, probably learnt very little until the day I left school. But no, from my own people and university came afterwards, of course. But uh, but that's where it all started, and that's where the interest started. And uh, I thought somewhere I, I would become a writer. I, you know, I would try to become a writer. I didn't say I would. I would. I'll try. And I think there was a realisation that was coming to me as well along the way is that um, a lot of the things that I've you know, believed in and a lot of what I've worked for hasn't really come to much. We've fought for Aboriginal government and um, constitutional rights. You did uh, block the Northern Territory from becoming a state. Yeah, I, no, I, no, it, it's, it, it's good. It's, it's, that, that was a, a really significant thing. And also um, it, the ideas that came from that convention, which was called Kalkaringi Convention and the Kalkaringi Statement that came out of that and the, the principles of a, you know, of a future, which was totally neglected, you know, not neglected, uh, ignored by the status quo of governments and bureaucrats and uh, politicians and um, a whole wall of that industry that, you know, surrounds Aboriginal people and uh, where I just started to feel that, you know, even if you wanted to break out of that wall, you just couldn't do it. You know, it's just, it's just, just about impossible to break out of it, to make it different. And I think a little bit early on from even that, you know, I was starting to realise that most of our public position here or, or even what we were doing um, is always chasing government or changing governments to do something better for us and then having to deal with the policies, the, 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 the stupid policies they put up. We spend the next four years of each government term dealing with that and dealing with it again. And I thought, well, my life, you know, our lives are being defined this way. Is this the best that we can be? And uh, as, as, as a, a kind of like a people that have been determined by a government that has no idea about who we are, and then we have to respond to that all the time. And um, is this the new Aboriginal culture? And uh, I didn't want it to be that. And uh, I didn't want to have to be loaded, my mind loaded with that all the time. And all of us, with no time to think about how we could be different and who we are, really. And I thought that through writing, that gave an opening to start thinking about who we are and, and uh, what sort of people we would like to be or, or, or we really are. And to show the world something else of our humanity rather than uh, a, a government broadcasting all over the world that we're rubbish people, as the previous government did. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of FrontBurner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear FrontBurner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Alexis Wright, the land... And also the sea and the sky feature very strongly in your most recent book, Carpentaria, a novel that, as you say, sings the story of a country. Can you tell me about that Aboriginal creation myth of, of the rainbow serpent? Well, there's all sorts of myths in Australia that are to do with the land, with the landscape, every inch of it. There's, there's stories where you know, rest in place of the serpent here and, and uh, the serpent travelled there. But there's not just a serpent, there's, you know, there's dog dreaming and there's termite dreaming, there's honey ant dreaming, there's dingo dreaming. There's all sorts of dreamings and all sorts of stories and to do with, do, do with everything. And stars in the sky and the wind and uh, storms and, and uh, there's a whole lot of stories. So Rainbow Serpent is a big story, but that's just one story. And uh, it's a big story and it's a very important story. And in creates the, the rivers and the, tri- the tributaries of the rivers and the, just yeah. And the, and the book is, in, is is a work of fiction. It's not you know all the real stories and all the, and all the stories I don't even know because um, there's stories that are held under different parts of the law and uh, Aboriginal law, and uh, I don't know those. They belong to um, you know the people who hold that 
law very close, you know, to the country. And if I knew, I wouldn't be able to write it into a book anyway. So, so you start with the myth, or you start with what you know, and then mm. in, invent and uh, around that. Or? Yes. Yeah. Because it's as if the landscape is internalized. I mean, the, the, the Pricklebush mob, the, the Aboriginal people, say that the elder Norman Phantom could grab hold of the river in his mind and live with it as his father's fathers did before him. How does that work, that in, internalization of the landscape? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you just make it up. But <laughs> it's, it's, um, well, it's, this is something that I've seen in so many people and Aboriginal people in lots of places, and particularly around home, that um, people just know their own country so well. They know all the stories about the country. They know every site. And um, I've seen people in Central Australia just who know so much in that way, then they just talk about it, and you just look at them, and they and they do. They're just this living person of the land that's around them. You can almost see it all inside you know, who they are when you look at them and you talk to them and the way people, they talk. And um, I remember one essay that was written in a book of essays and stories that are compiled and edited for um, the Central Land Council called Take Power. And um, uh, one essay in there was talking about one old man, you know, from out in the desert area in the Simpson Desert. And um, this man, he just, he knew all these, you know, every place in this desert landscape every little soak every little bump in the land and he knew every story about all those places hundreds and hundreds of sites and um well he just grew up knowing all that country too and had been shown it and, and been told those stories and constantly told the stories like my grandmother would tell the stories over and over again you heard it and you heard it and it's all it's internalized it's his world and that's who that person is. So that's Norm Phantom as well. He's that sort of person who, who, who knows it so well. And he's been shown it and he's been told it and he can feel it. It's his place. And also his responsibility for knowing it as well and caring for it. And um, it's very important. You've described Carpentaria as a narration of the kind of stories we can tell to our ancestral land. And I was thinking it's it's, it's an interesting twist for a writer mm. who is nurtured on stories from your grandmother to then have this idea of creating a story to tell to the ancestors. Well, people talk to the ancestors, you know. They talk to it. And when uh, countries visited. You talk to the ancestors, you talk, you have a relationship with the ancestral beings of, of, of your country. And I thought, you know, in talking to the, the country, well, you could do a long story of us, of what we're doing, how we're traveling, you know, our dreams, our aspirations, the things that are troubling us. And this is how we're traveling today in today's world. It's like a contemporary story to the ancestors. And um, as the stories of the dreaming are told back and forth to the country and sung and and, uh, and, and danced. I thought, well, you could do it in a contemporary way too and, and maybe this is a, a, a way of doing it and, and um, of talking to the country and rather than thinking of, you know, who are you addressing this book to? If you're telling a, a story in a way that stories are told in, in, a, in our culture in, in an oral way and a very big storytelling culture that... Um, this is a, a way of doing it in literature. The narrative voice in Carpentaria is very engaging, a mm. colloquial, deadpan. Who do you imagine the speaker to be? I mean, is, is he an actual character in, in your mind? Yeah, um, it's um, the actual character in my mind was a, a, an older man, an, an elder, talking, talking about country, talking about uh, the same sort of things. I know those voices so well, you know, I've worked with those voices for, for years. And um, one day, you know, I, I was walking home in Alice Springs, you know, across the footbridge of the Todd River there, and um, two elders were, uh, older men were walking in front of me and I could hear them talking and they were talking about life finishing up for them. Life was no good and I felt really bad and I felt, no, 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 you shouldn't think like that, it's not good. Then it 
occurred to me that um, this is how this book should be written with those voices, those type of voices that I've always heard all my life. And so I went up and put it in that voice of how an elder would tell the story, talking to the country, to the ancestors. And at the time, when I decided to write in that way, I knew that I, I, I was taking on a huge risk to write it in that, in that type of voice because from all my experience and all the work that I've ever done, that was the voice that Australia never wanted to listen to, has never listened to, and that was the voice of our elders. Carpentaria takes place in and around the fictional town of Desperance, and it's a, the name is a conflation of despair and hope, I mean, Esperance. Mm-hmm. And it has a complicated social geography, the East Siders, the West Siders, the Uptown people. And the town's inhabitants are, are, are quite extraordinary in their own right, and, and they have these illustrative names. I mean, for instance, um, well, Norm, Normal Phantom, uh, the old tribal man, his wife, Angel Day, his activist son, Will, uh, Will's wife, Hope, mm-hmm. a charismatic preacher, uh, Mozzie Fishman. What kind of Aboriginal sensibility did you want to reflect in, in bringing to life this colourful cast of, of characters? Well... A lot of people do have strange names. People are given names that uh, might have something to do with um, you know, what they do. Uh, I get called righty. <laughs> <laughs> but even the, even the white folks have, have these revealing names. The brutal mayor is called Bruiser. The, the mm. local policeman uh, called Truthful. Mm. Uh, the mining company is Gerferit. You know? mm-hmm. mm. uh, I just wonder why is this, uh, these, this, the transparent names? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, like I said, the, the people have in northern Australia and, and a lot of Aboriginal people do have different kinds of names given to them and people have lots of nicknames in the country but we also have a great sense of humor and that's probably something that saves us in you know in some of these dire times that we have there's a great sense of humor and I've experienced that you know, in a lot of the work that I've done and people see the funny side of things and some of the politics that you're involved with and um, you just have a good laugh and people, and and in the storytelling too, and the stories that people tell at night or sitting around outside of a meeting at night time in in the bush somewhere, and that to tell these stories about people and places, and then people get given names, and and everyone will have a good laugh. And oh, I really wanted the book to reflect that sense of humour that's in the the Aboriginal world, you know, well and truly. That's um, part of the names, so, and some of those names just occurred to me. And, like Mozzie Fishman just occurred to me one day when I was walking again on the Todd River in Alice Springs, and uh, that's how he came into being. And there, there is humour for sure. I mean, the, the East Side mob even, and they're somewhat dubious ethically in terms of taking money from a mining company and all kinds of stuff going on, but they mm. they invent a tribal name, Wangabaya, and and then you you talk about how all these lost Wangabaya people show up from different places. Well, that and, happens. And happens. <laughs> Even Stuff <from> happens. <laughs> Even in our world, yeah. and uh, and and the normal phantom that name is is well, um, you know, it's kind of typical Aboriginal man in Australia. I'd like to talk for a moment about some of the, the striking characters in your novel, uh, Carpentaria. Normal Phantom, for mm-hmm. for one, has he's lived all his life in the in the dense pricklebush scrub at the edge of Desperance. Mm-hmm. He's he's down to earth, but he also is spiritually attuned. He's inherited his father's memory of the sea, mm-hmm. and and above all, he's a wonderful storyteller. Can you tell me more about about him and his attunement that he has to the spiritual world? Well, he's he, he's also a familiar figure, you know, in 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 the indigenous world. I think any indigenous person reading the book will see those sort of people, and they know those sort of people. Normal Phantom is more attuned to a spiritual world, and that is his responsibility. There's lots of responsibilities you have as a, a caretaker for um, your traditional land and to the to the ancestors. That is who he is but he's also a man who's affected by the realities of the real world 
and uh, those realities of the real world are not connected very well to the world that he's inherited in terms of his, his spirituality. A lot of Aboriginal people are placed in a very difficult world and it's very hard to be one or the other. So uh, those are the kinds of things that I wanted to show how difficult it is you know, to be an Indigenous man in today's world. And that's why the, you know, it was very important that this was a contemporary novel and not a historical novel. And a lot of those main characters, yeah, Norm Phantom and Mozzie Fishman and, 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 and Will Phantom, they are positioned in those two very opposed worlds. And I think the kind of test was in the novel is how do you survive? How do you survive as an Indigenous person in the world today? And given that you have these deep responsibilities in the cultural world and in the real world, and there seems to be no um, resolution that I've been able to find anyway. <laughs> One of the, the, the fantastic events in the novel is, is the, the emergence from the sea of a white man who, with no memory. And he's taken by the townspeople who give him the name Elias Smith, and the elders engage in memory revisions. There's a, there's a memory tribunal. We're told that although Elias never remembered his origins, he was able to acquire other people's memory. Mm. They, they gave him their imagination. How does that work? Or rather, how does it make sense in, in the world of the novel? Well, I think with Elias, he is, again, sort of representative or a metaphor for people coming to Australia and um, virtually coming with no memory of their own past and their own places and, and their own cultures and coming here and almost throwing it all away, you know, their own sense of selves. And, um, so even the way you he, say his name, Alias, is like, it's, it's like he, yeah, he doesn't alien. even have a name, it's an alias <laughs> yeah. for some other name, it's not even Elias, it's mm, Alias. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. It's, it's just a representation of, of, of coming with, without any memory and it's like a metaphor, it's just, uh, He's lost his memory in the sea, alias, but it seems like a, a good many people have lost their memory in the sea on their way here to start the new life in Australia. And the people in Desperance are a lot like that. And uh, so they can give him... They, they all came with no memory, but they've created this little memory here in this little place called Desperance, and uh, it's a very new memory, but um, they share it with the alias. Norm's third and once favorite son, Will, is an important figure in the novel. Uh, he's estranged from the family. He's an activist, an environmentalist. He, he's fighting for land rights. He's, a, he's fighting against the mining company that's threatening the life of the community. Mm. His wife is named Hope, and their names alone would suggest an almost allegorical reading of the novel. Can you tell me about Will and, and his role in, in your story? Well, Will is a... Um Will and, 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 and his father, Norm Phantom, well, Norm is a very traditional man, and Will is learning to be an elder, you know, a traditional man, and he also is a bright young man, who, and he also sees the difficulties that are happening in, in, in his traditional country of, you know, the, the, the pending the development of this huge, monstrous um, mine, and it's going to do all sorts of environmental damage and sacred site damage and uh, social consequences of having, you know, miners in the area and, and, and so on. So the, the issue between Norman and Will is the elder, Norm Phantom, he believes, you know, the spirits, you know, the, the ancestors will take care of business, you know, that if um, you, you look after that world, any threats into the world that you live in, the ancestors will take care of it. But Will feels that what's happening with mining is so monumental and, and, and huge that, um, you know, the ancestors might need a bit of a hand and that, you know, that's his activism. So that's part of the idea there. Well, how do you live in today's world? And it's so complicated because even his older brothers are, are working for the mine. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a But it is complicated. It's a complicated the, situation. The, 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 the Aboriginal world is complicated. And does the future depend on will and hope? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, it, it, it's, 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 it's their story in the novel is quite complicated and uh, towards the end, um, Will's at sea and Hope is, you know, goes, goes to back, look for him. Goes, goes to look for him and um, they may find each other or not. Alexis Wright, your, your novel Carpentaria, is, is, it's magical, it's comical, it's surreal, and at the same time, although it's not polemical, it does reflect real contemporary issues with uh, the dispossession of ancestral lands, the divisiveness of mining interests, uh, even, even death in custody in, uh, in affecting Aboriginal youth uh, who are held in, in, in prisons. How, how did you want to address all, all these kinds of issues? Um. I think I was a bit ambitious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't know how many times you're going to get a go at writing a book. And um, so I wanted the book to reflect the contemporary world of Aboriginal people in, in, a, in a fictional way, yeah, the realities in our cultural world as, as, as well and the conflicts between those kind of worlds and um, the things that we think about dream about and um, also to 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 explore the questions and things that I think you know all Aboriginal people should be you know be given the space to to be able to explore possibilities um, things that they might want to imagine instead of being railroaded in a way by government policies and responding to that all the time and uh, never any kind of settlement in our, in our lives but um yeah, I, I wanted to be able to explore some of those those questions about, you know, how do you live in today's world and what's important and how to uh, or just dream and to imagine. I think that's a good thing. In, in terms of reacting to public policy or politicians or whatever, it's just over a year ago that uh, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, fairly newly elected at that time, mm-hmm. Uh, gave an official apology uh, to, to the stolen generations. Was that an important moment for you? It was an important moment for the whole country. Everyone was deeply affected by the apology when he was making it, and he did the apology well, and that uh, was a good thing that he did. But um, there hasn't been any follow-up, and um, I don't have any great confidence that this government will deal with some of the issues in the in in the right way the the issues of aboriginal rights aboriginal self determination and to um, continue that uh, intervention policies of the, the the previous government for the the full term of this new uh, government this Rudd labor government is not a good thing in my so in, the prime minister howard's intervention mm. is, is is continuing in it terms is of, continuing to the uh, end, of, end of the term of this this government in, in terms of intervening in in, in uh, aboriginal areas with respect to uh, availability of alcohol availability of, yes. of pornography that whole yes. policy is, yes. is still in place it's still in place and uh, i think um you know i think there needed to be some sort of intervention in in a way in terms of bad policies, generations and generations of bad policies that led to the situation that Aboriginal people are in. But it should have been in negotiation with Aboriginal nations of Northern Territory. And in fact, you know, I've worked with uh, uh, Aboriginal communities, the Aboriginal tribal groups, nations in Central Australia on the Kalkaringi Convention and the Kalkaringi Statement. And one of the principles of that statement was Aboriginal self-government and the recognition of uh, Aboriginal rights, and the whole, you know, every government, you know, and territory government, federal government, every politician, bureaucrats, they all ignored that statement. This is people up there talking for themselves, of wanting to plan for a future, and be responsible for their own future, and working towards it. That got absolutely ignored. And then a few few years later, after you know Howard government orchestrating this whole nation into believing that Aboriginal people were were totally you know useless and looking after their children and in, as people, they brought in that intervention before the, the the last election which he lost, and this government continuing that, I don't have any great hope for what's happening. Anything good in the last year that you can see? Not really. 
And the uh, way I look at it now is that this government and um, politicians and that make up this government, and if it was the other government, doesn't really matter. As far as I'm concerned, they've had years of dealing with us as Indigenous people. They've had years and years of dealing with us, and they know what we've said, what we wanted. There's been so much written. There's libraries full of it. And uh, if they wanted to do the right thing, they could do it tomorrow. They don't need any more academic papers or symposiums or um, you know us jumping up and down and marching to the door and, and saying this is what we want and this is the reason why. They don't need that anymore. They can do it. They know what needs to be done because they've had so long with dealing with us. They just have to do it. And they just have to have the guts to do it. And um, I don't think they have. So what can you do? Except go on and deal with your own imagination and deal with you know, building your own world. Is it like, uh, as you say in Carpentier, that anyone can find hope in the stories? I think so. Mm. I think so. It's a great pleasure to have a chance to meet you. Thank you very Thank you, much. Thank you, Eleanor. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Indigenous novelist Alexis Wright with me in Melbourne in 2009. Carpentaria is published by Giramondo and New Directions. Alexis Wright's latest novel is called Praiseworthy. Just to update, the Australian Labour government's version of intervention ended in 2022, though some aspects of the policy continue in other legislation. Last fall, in a landmark referendum, a majority of Australians voted no to a measure that would have amended the Constitution to recognize Aboriginal peoples and establish a permanent representative body, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. Technical operations by Kira Mahoney. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, looking back at English novelist Elizabeth Jane Howard, who died a decade ago. Famous for the Castlet Chronicles, she turned to her own life in her memoir, Slipstream. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.